All right, here we go. See, look at that. All right, here we go. Let's pray and let's go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. Amen. So we did one line last week. At this pace, we should be done about 2019, which is okay with me if it's okay with you. Well, I couldn't remember. I brought you something else. This is actually, you know, uh, one of the, this is what I give to the new members on prayer so they know what they're getting into. It changes. I should say this is what I gave to them this time. It changes around uh, depending on what we're talking about. But this would be, you know, the idea would be if you could get to start to finish in just this, this would be the basic thing that kind of everybody would know about prayer at St. John. Yes, my friend. Of your, of your, that you're a new grandma? All right, uh, let's see. Mary Stephanie's a big show-off new grandma, and you should all give her proper show-off propers about that. Grayson William, born to Aaron Margaret, is that correct? All right, good, there we go. So, uh, yeah, do you have a picture? <laughs> it'll get better, don't worry, it'll get better. Uh, okay, let's see here. How did I not get a stand? I'm going to have to work with that one. Okay, um, anything left over from last week you want to chatter about? We didn't have to say too much, and then we, we sort of all took off, and that's completely fine. Uh, anything, anything you want to chatter about? Or are you all good? Everybody's good? So um, at the new members, if you pick up that new member sheet, if you just look at the corner of it, my great nervousness is that most people's prayers uh, turn out to be up on the left-hand corner. Most of us don't pray. Most of us just rehearse our anxieties out loud. That's one way. Or if you turn in, uh, kind of in probably on the back last page, there's a little cartoon. I want a pony, I want a pony, which is how most people's prayers look. I want a pony, I want a pony, I want a pony, you know. Um, so, so hopefully, do you get, I know, Jeanette, I'm so sorry. The real one is slightly bigger. I know, I did the same thing. I'm like, what did I write here? The world before prayers and, oh, Hedda, what does it say? Structure and a set format. There you go. Before, the, before there was a set format. So the thing is, is from little on, well, for whatever reason, we're taught that our prayers are, I want a pony, I want a pony, or, you know, we rehearse our anxieties out loud. I'm so worried about this, I'm so concerned about this, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. And that, you know, that's not, that's not wrong. It's one part of prayer, but it is a relatively small thing. Um, I was reading something, uh, I, I was reading something by this, I don't know what to call him, a spiritual guide where he said, um, to accept all things that the Lord gives you is an act of humility. And, of course, then the original sin is pride. And so I've been kind of reflecting on that, that, that um, one of the things that gets into the I want a pony notion is that we, it's actually prideful in its own sort of way, that we don't remember that our prayers start with, our Father, or my Father, or God is really gracious, or as Luther says, we pray to our Father as if he was our gracious Heavenly Father, and he wants everything good for us. So if you could imagine what a perfect Father would be like, um, a perfect Father wouldn't indulge your every whim, but a perfect Father would make all things work together for your good. If you can imagine what that's like, to rebel against that, to whatever might come then, would be an act of pride rather than humility. So sort of the ultimate humility is to have whatever the Lord gives you and to thank him for it. But man, that is a stretch. I mean, that is really a stretch. Which is why, of course, it's the sort of thing that a spiritual guide talks to you about. Um, you know, to, to receive anything. And it always can go off the rails where you say, you know, there's no God and this is no good and I know better. Which, of course, you recognize as the very first sin and only sin. So, um, you know, I want a pony as a variation of that, or can be in a sense, or stacking up your anxieties. So you have, to, you have to have this thing between, this is I think where I started last week, you have to have this what a friend we have in Jesus notion. He is your friend, and he is present, and he does love you, and he does want your best. But on the other hand, um, you know, if it's only ever about you, it's only ever about you. 
And so I found John Kleinig's lectures um, very helpful. In fact, I was in touch with him this week. He's going to swing back through. Um, I think we may be able to get him here in September. He's, he's becoming more and more popular here. So it used to be I'd say, where are you going to go? And there'd be one or two places. He sent me his itinerary. There's about 12 stops now over a course of about six weeks. And part of it is not to exhaust him because he comes halfway around the world. And then also, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, it's our duty not only to travel but to engage everybody's spiritual concerns because he's such a kind guy that uh, people are automatically drawn to him. He's retired, so I, he's 64, 65. I think Australia has roughly the same retirement age we do. No, it's not. It's, no, it's not old. No, no. Ari, my previous comments this morning. Yes, that's not. Yeah, old. But old is always somebody older than you. That was my early morning reflection. Considerably older, yes, right. Although considerably, as you, that must shrink as you get. Like if you're 90, is considerably older 93. You know, that's you got to kind of think that all the way through. Yeah. There you go. That's considerably older, 97. We'll use her as the marker, okay, for today at least. We'll use her. She could be considerably older than all of us. Well, I was saying this morning at early prayers how guys in their 60s used to be really old. And I'm struggling a little bit because, you know, now I still think guys are in their 60s are really old, but I'm not that far from it. So what am I, I get this, I don't quite know what to do with that right now. But that's, but that's rehearsing my anxieties. Will I? Yeah, one way or another. Yeah, it usually works out where they put you to sleep and they replace parts of you. I know I've seen it happen before, but all right. So um, anything just about that? And we talked, you know, quite a lot last week about how you, this ancient story of, um, and I, and I, I want to say again, this is John's stuff. And so I give it to you and I'll take responsibility for the heirs and, you know, give him any praise for what's genius about it. But this ancient story of how when you appeal to a king, the king actually receives your case and it's no longer your case. And then what that means is in a sense, you don't have to worry about it, but you can stay interested and of course, as facts change or as circumstances warrant, you can still, you can still engage. So, um, just sort of the first part. Is that all, everybody good with that? You're all good. All right. So let's sort of move in this. So, um, you know, Christ, 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 Christ dilemma is how he puts it. What's he going to do with all of you? Um, and then I gave you the quick Lutheran warning that, well, you know, what well, two of the saddest things about Lutherans is one when they only just. They think the limit of Christianity is, I'm not going to hell, <laughs> which of course is the beginning thing, not the end thing. So if people are always stuck with, well, I'm not going to hell, and other people are going to hell, or nobody's going to hell, if, you, if that's your, always your conversation, you've missed the Christian life. And then the other notion, and when Lutherans are so interested in, you know, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, all the alone stuff, yeah, I get that, but to, ha- to be illumined by the Holy Spirit, to say what we say in the third article that the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, illumines in classic spirituality, and sanctifies. But what the Holy Spirit does actually does gives you a new will. You, you see things the way you never saw them before. You can do things you've never done before. You're allowed to do things and go places that were before were forbidden to you. And in fact, Jesus encourages that. So, you know, Christ's dilemma, how to um, get you to work with him. Now, uh, yes, you may, of course. You can always ask a question. Yes, we're actually going to go there, which is you're going to get to, you're going to get to give God some good advice. Previously, that's not open to you. You're not a friend of the king, right? But what what's going to happen is you get to actually give him some good advice. So, say there's things you'd like to fix about your husband or your kids. God is very willing to listen to that. You might have an idea or two since you live closely with them. The example here is Abram with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. God sort of says, I've got, we'll read it in just a second, but he says, I've got this trouble. I wonder if I should tell Abraham about him. He lives in the neighborhood. And then they back and forth a little bit. And this is the problem with people who think that God never changes his mind. This is just a little aside. Um, you know, people have this idea that, and this is a particular problem in Wheaton, that people, the, the stronger you have this notion of predestination, God chalks this line and nothing will ever change. Nonsense. God's a person and you're a person. Here's the line that never changes. God is for you and not against you. That's the thing that, all, that never changes. He loves you. He loves you. He's for you. That will never change. 
But the back and forth of your life changes dramatically. Your life is very different if you listen to God, if you're faithful to your husband, if you love your kids, than if you're not. Your church is just like that. Your church, this is what I mean when I say you can create your own reality in your church. If, you're, if your church is kind and loving and honest and true and everything is done in the light, you get one kind of church, and if you're not, you get another kind of church. It's the same with your family, right? It's everything. It's your work, it's your family, it's your church, it's your own life. If you're open to God and in humility will receive what he gives you, that's very different than pridefully saying, I'm doing this no matter what. Make sense? So this God's a person with a personality. He has a personality, just like you have a personality. The only thing, his is really cool, and ours is sort of screwed up sometimes, right? Um, you know, so you have these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with three personalities. And this great thing about the Holy Trinity is they live together and love each other, and they always cooperate, and they always do their own work, like whosever job it is to take out the garbage, they always actually take it out. I mean, it's your house, okay? When there's a garbage can and it's overflowing out on the floor under the sink, that is the international symbol for what? Take the garbage out. Yes, right. Everybody knows this. Okay, you're right. See, and that's the problem with our world. But in the divine perichoresis of the Holy Trinity, the garbage is always taken out because people say, well, of course we understand. You see what I mean? And so this great thing about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's seen most brilliantly in, the, um, in Jesus going to the cross, you know, this extraordinarily difficult decision where the Father says, this is best, and the Son says, I'll go, and the Spirit mediates and strengthens. It's very difficult to watch that if you're the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, and then to be given the task that he has to, to, um, to sort of carry through with. So it's very different than us, you know, where we are scattered. Now, the more we can imitate the divine life of the Trinity, the better our life is together in our family, in our church. Make sense? That's what we're trying to do, okay? The problem is, is, um, you know, what happens as soon as Jesus gives you divine power? What happens? Yeah, you turn into Harry Potter. That's right. You, you, you know, you uh, immediately, this is, the, this is the great danger of, this is the great danger of divine power, that you could go bad at any moment, right? And the truth is that some people um, this is, this is, are broken by divine power. And this is, what happens is, is if you get power beyond the purity of your heart, you use the power for evil. And that's why, for instance, in a church you're so careful about this is why, you know, my long-standing refrain is nobody will be a leader here who doesn't come to church, go to Bible study, tithe, and live in mercy. Because if you put people in positions that are who, and their hearts are not prepared, it destroys them and everybody else around them. Because divine power is extraordinarily potent stuff. And when we use it, um, it can, when we use it the wrong way, it goes bad and it just ruins everybody around. Okay, And that's why the church is always, I mean, that's all tied into the grow up and move from milk to meat and be careful and choose wisely and a bishop has to look like this and da-da-da. That's all over the scriptures, whether or not people have the ability to have what's given. Now, the great thing about prayer, and and I have to say, um, Beth, you were there, and who else was there? Mary, you were there too. One of the interesting things... um, one of the re- John Kleinig, um, I, had to, I talked to Chip for years about having John come and teach Arcadia. And of course, it's, it's high stakes because all these people are coming and they're used to a very sophisticated crowd. And if it bombs, then the person who bombed it, you know, gets. Kleinig got one of the only standing ovations in memory, I think, is how they, re- they told us. I mean, it was really quite. It's not, it's extraordinarily difficult. I, no, I, no, I, 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 yeah, I mean, they're such a, no, I took it, in, I took it, I took it in exactly the spirit it was meant, which is, these people are, yeah, exactly, receive whatever I get. Here's the thing. No, they're a very sophisticated crowd, and they've heard everybody, and so even to get sort of people to smile at you is this huge, I mean, now, part of the reason, um, so John has this remarkable intellect. He's one of the two or three brightest guys 
I've ever met. He's a Cambridge PhD. The cool thing about him is he's got all of that, and then he's also spent a lot of time you know, in New Guinea and Indonesia working where people are demon-possessed and in the outback with the Aborigines. And he's, so he's got this huge uh, body of work that goes from, that he can play in every discipline. And the very interesting thing is um, that he, and in the midst of that, in his 50s, he was brought up on heresy charges in Australia by his former students and by some professors that he worked with for opposing women's ordination. So that's, and that was a devastating and debilitating physical, mental, and spiritual thing for him. And he came through um, that. And that's part of the reason I used him as a confessor, um, given our last four or five years here. It's part, he was, I sort of put myself into his hands. And he had this, so he comes through that all, and now he comes at the end of, the, of his career, and people can't get enough of him. And part of that is he can take this very difficult thing, our prayer, and he observed, and it is true, and maybe I've done this already to you, as soon as you start to talk about prayer with people, they immediately clam up. Why do they immediately clam up? Everybody shows up, but then they clam up. Why is that? Why? Uh, Somewhat. It could be prideful, so that's one possibility. They can think they know everything, but what's the other side of it? It is a personal thing, good. Yeah, there's always this thing about I want to do it, but I can't do it, right? And this is normally the experience of people that prayers fail. And the great kindness um, that John said in a couple of different ways, and we'll go through this over the course of the week, is your prayers can't go wrong. Isn't that a fascinating thing? You can't get your prayers wrong. Which is such a consolation. Um, because we, I, even, you know, I, I recognize this, I'm very... I'm rebellious against prayers stacking up your anxieties or I want a pony, I want a pony. And the problem for me is I've grown up with that. I, you know, I grew up, you know, obviously you figured this out about me by now. I grew up in a time when liturgy and history and, and frankly even intelligence was scorned in the church and it still is in many. There's been an anti-intellectual movement in the church for the last, you know, hundred years. And um, all this, so what's happened is, is we have all these brilliant people who, who were the greatest minds in the world for 2,000 years and they've been utterly ignored in the lifetime that I've lived, which has been a great disappointment to me. And the hard thing for me is I haven't even been able to find people who know stuff. And what's going to happen is now the church has to go through this period where it rediscovers everything on its own. And so in some ways um, the church is diminished for another century or so until it rediscovers all these people like Bonaventure and Aquinas and Augustine and the Church Fathers. And then you have to go to the East and all the guys, the Fathers. So the, only, the quickest way back to that is through the liturgy and the writing of the Fathers, where we relearn from other people. So anyway, you see, I've been conditioned by my own upbringing um, with, a, <clears throat> with a sensitivity to how wrong it's been. And you can sum it up in, I want a pony, I want a pony. Okay. Now... What's very nice about John Kleinig is he comes to the other side and he says, well, that's all true, and believe me, he believes that's all true. But on the other side, he would say to you, very consolingly, as the old man, you can't get it wrong. And so we need to talk a little bit about how it is um, that we can't get it wrong. So, so basically it goes like this. Jesus loves you, and he touches you, and he heals you, and he brings you to a calm place. And then he gives you a life to live, classically talked about as the disciplines. And so I talked about that last Sunday in church. I'm going to talk about it again this Sunday in church. Um, about Jesus gives you the discipline so that you can hold on to the life that you've been given. So he gives you this life. He heals you. He saves you. He touches you. He loves you. But then you have to tend the life. And that is all over the New Testament. And one of the ways you tend it is with your prayers um, the problem is, is that, that we can mix that up so, um, so badly. And even a bigger problem than that is we can't do it on our own. So we need this divine help, this divine energy, this divine illumination of the Spirit in order to do our work. Um, but that fights against what's evil in us. So you see what happens? God gives us this divine gift, and then it bangs together with the old Adam in us. And so every day you wake up and it's a struggle. And um, that's where the discipline point comes in. You know, they, 
every day you wake up and, and if, if, you, if it's this constant struggle, how do you move forward, not only in your own life, but also to pray for the world, for rulers, for pastors, for church, for friends. That's all in the scriptures. So how do we do that? And how can we, how can we have this gift of, of prayer and not, not abuse it, not turn it into just a litany of the things I want or the things I think I need? when the reality is those things wouldn't really be good for me at all. How can, I, how can I have the things that the Lord wants me to have and rejoice in his surprises and not be resentful when my life doesn't work out the way I think my life should work out? And so how can I live um, in humility and say, I'll have what the Lord gives me? So all of that is the difficulty here. Um, and it was really interesting when John puts that question that way. He says, you know, how can all that be tied together? And his answer was, it's tied together in prayer. So here's the first thing that threw me a little bit. Prayer only does good. And I was very um, surprised to hear that uh, in, in, a, in a couple of different ways. But prayer, so you have to test this. I'm not sort of telling you what to believe. You've got to figure this out, but... You know, listen to people who are smarter than you, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about John and the Church Fathers. Prayer only does good. Um, in fact, he went so far as to say, you can't do evil in praying in Jesus' name. And I have said that to you. If you look on your sheet, he gives you the text for this. This is John um, 15. This is the first sheet that says Friends of the King on it. You got this? This is the great text. You know, you're my friends. Isn't that great? How Jesus talks to you? You're my friends. You're my friends. If you do what I tell you. Command is not a good word there. The Latin is mandatum. It is, it is mandate. It is if you do what I've given you. If you do the things I've given you. This, this is the same thing that is always not very well translated in Matthew 28, the Great Commission teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you. It sounds like Jesus is shaking his finger at you. A better translation is teaching them to treasure up. They use the word for, for the his, they, they use the word for what the Virgin Mary said after the birth when she saw the angels, she saw the babies and the wise men on the horizon. You remember it says she treasured up everything in her heart? That's the word. So you learn to treasure up and command it is, all the things I've left behind, all the gifts I've left behind. Command just doesn't get it. Because command for us, in English, is a finger-shaking. I command you to do this. This is like, you're my friends. If you do the things I've left for you to do. So this is the most basic Jesus stuff. He says, I'm going to give you a gift. Here's how you do it. Remember, how do, how do we, the disciples came and said, how do we do this? So Jesus gives him his own prayer the Lord's Prayer looks like it's the prayer that Jesus himself prayed. So he, they, get a, they, they find out what Jesus was doing up in the mountains when he was all by himself. What he was doing is praying like this. When you pray, pray like this. So he said, you're my friends, and you asked, and I told you, and I'm begging you, just please do this. That's not the law, that's the gospel. You Please do this because it'll be so good for you, and it'll... It'll humble you, and it'll bless you, and it'll be for you, and it'll be for others, and it'll build the church, and it'll save the world, and it'll bring you to heaven, and you'll all come home to Eden where you belong. That's not the law. That is Jesus loving you as a friend. So, you know, you're my friends if you do what I ask you. I don't call you servants, and we're going to talk about this language in a little bit. I don't call you servants. Because the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. Actually, I'll just tell you to it now. In an ancient household, there were two kinds of servants. There were the courtiers who lived with the family, and there were just the normal house servants. The first group was in on it. They were the people who could give advice. They could go to the king and speak their mind. They, could, they always needed to be respectful, but they were heard, you know, as opposed to people who were just fetching the water and open the door and drawing a sword once in a while. So what Jesus says is, you're the first group. You're on the inside. You're like Abraham. When I've got a trouble, I wouldn't mind hearing your perspective. And sometimes, you know, the king lets people speak just so they get it out and just so they realize the options. I don't call you servants because the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. Now here's the payoff. 
But I've made known to you everything that I heard from my Father. Isn't this great? So the Father speaks to the Son, and the Son speaks to you. And he tells you everything you need to know to flourish. Nothing held back. Nothing murky. You know, certainly things that are mysterious, that are beyond you, beyond me. But everything you need to know, I tell you everything you need to know. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Um, So much for the Billy Graham Center. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit. Now, this is the big stuff. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. So it's not just, I didn't just bring you along to keep you out of hell. You know, I appointed you to live a particular life. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. You know, and a tree doesn't eat its own fruit. I appointed you to be good for other people, right? To multiply, to bless, to be a blessing. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, you know, this mysterious thing of the kingdom and back to Eden. And then the payoff. So the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And then you've heard this. I mean, if you ever came through a new members class or anything, you, um, you've heard this from me a dozen times, but um, he's actually serious about that. So whatever you ask inside his name, you get to have. This is review. I know you know this, but I just want you to make sure that you've got it. So there's a boundary. So give me a name, any name. Give me a, give me a, give me a name for the second person of the Trinity, any name you like, give me a name. Sorry? Physician, okay, so here's great physician. Drawn right out of a text, doubtless you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. So there is this um, name, great physician. So, obviously when you're, when do you use this name? When you're sick. So anything that you've got that's sick, right, And what kind of sickness could you possibly have? Like? Good, okay, good. Body, soul, mind, however you want to cut somebody up, spirit, right? Okay, good. He's good for all of that because he's a Hebrew, and Hebrews had one, you have one body, and it's all bundled up. The Greeks thought of you in different pieces. The Hebrews, the Jews, thought of you as one. So for Jesus, he's a Jew. He's not a Greek. It's Jesus talking, not Paul. It's okay to talk the other way, too. But Jesus talks of you as one bundle. And so, when you're sick, what do you ask for? Healing. So, Jesus, and so you think about Jesus. Jesus healed people all the time. He wants people to be healed. He makes blind people see. He lets people who can't speak, speak. He lets people who can't hear, hear. He even raises dead people from the dead. Okay, so he's very interested in you getting better. He doesn't want you to suffer. Suffering is not normal. It is necessary sometimes, as you got from the great Stephen Colbert a few weeks ago. Did you get that? Do you watch Stephen Colbert? Do you know that most kids under like 30 get their real news from Stephen Colbert? Isn't that great? Did you get the Stephen Colbert? Did we not run that? We did run that. Didn't you get the Stephen Colbert pain quote yet? See, the problem is I'm working always three weeks ahead. Did you not get the Stephen Colbert... Brothers were killed in a plane crash yet? Okay, it must be coming this week. Then hold on. I don't want to ruin it for you. It's always interesting when people who are other people speak interestingly about themselves. I won't ruin it for you, but you can pay attention to your new best church father, Stephen Colbert. It is weird what people say. So there you go. Um, I'll just give it to you because now I'm just messing with you. He basically, he basically his, parents, his dad and his two brothers were flying to prep school in New York someplace. The plane went down when he was 10 and killed them all. And he said, my mother taught me that God's answer to pain is not always no pain. Isn't that fascinating? So God's answer to pain is not always no pain. We, we, we think, what do we think? We think God's answer to pain is no pain. I got pain? What's the answer? No pain. I'm dying in the hospital. What's the answer? Life. Yeah, right. My hip hurts. What's the answer? A new hip. But not always. Paul's got a thorn in the side, and he prays for it three times to go away, and what happens? Nothing. <laughs> well, something happened, but that didn't. But not that, right? Not that. 
you're right, nothing happened. That's a, that you're right, nothing happened, and then something happened. Because somehow he understood that God's answer to pain isn't always no pain. Right, see? So now, of course, you can't think about, if you take the name great physician, if you take the name, now, I mean, you got to get this all, this goes along with the Jesus name that puts him on the cross. He dies to save people. So it doesn't always mean that you're going to make it. And so here's the thing. So I've often said to you, though, your greatest healing is your death. Yeah, because your death is your transition to a life that never ends. So in the end, when we pray for, you're sick in the hospital, and we pray for you, and you die, we say, thanks for, thanks for a good answer. And so Christians talk about a blessed death. It means to actually die with the minimum amount of fuss and in the greatest possible faithfulness. Now, you know, clearly, clearly, a death causes all kinds of complications. Clearly. I mean, all you need is one death to show you that in your family. Just one. But it means that there is this bigger thing. So you'll need a great physician name. And then you also, you might need some, another name at the death point, which would be something like, what other name would be good? Good, yeah. Oh, so good. And you'll so go back to your Christmas time, and you shall call his name. Counselor would be good if you actually needed to know some stuff, if you're the kind of person who wants to know some stuff. You know, Prince of Peace might be a good name if you're just happy to have your soul soothed, right? So anyway, I give you in there about three things in. I mean, Jeanette, you thought the other one was small? Open that other thing where you that to that page right there. <coughs> Even I just know those are the names of Jesus, but can no longer read them. Yeah, you do. Yeah, this is gazillion. This is a gazillion. I could read it when I first came. Right? So basically, you say what you and I. And I think I told you once. I taught, or a couple times, I've taught Christology at the seminary. You know, so you're supposed to teach about the person and work of Christ. I just do. I just do a different name with him every class, because you can you can get everything you know need to know about Jesus out of his names. And then he tells you, whatever you ask in my name. And so you'll notice, you know, one of the tests, the vicars always write the prayers on Sunday. And one of the, we can tell how clever our vicars are by how many names they can sort of pull out. And then we always have to edit them, because if they start using, you know, Lord God Almighty to pray for the sick, you know, maybe, but that there might be a better name, because there's, there's a little bit of pushing around in the Lord God Almighty name. You know, so we do, we, if somebody needs to be pushed around, that's the, that's the name you use. So you might, you might use the almighty name when somebody, when evil needs to be put down. So you need an almighty guy when there's evil. You need a, you need a, a peaceful, a prince of peace when you're riled up, disoriented, disordered. You need a great physician when you're sick. You need a Jesus, Matthew one twenty one called his name Jesus because he'll save them from their sins. So if you've got some sins that you can't get out of, you pray, dear Jesus, I can't believe I did this. Right? So what happens is, is you keep, you, you sort of learn these things, and, and it is true then, whatever you pray in his name, if you can pull it out of his name, you can have it. And of course, there's not a name, you know, for being a millionaire or winning a game show or getting a new Cadillac. And this is the problem with people who are on TV saying, if you just pray, you'll have a lot of money. There's no name for that. Because if there was, I would have found it by now. There is no name for being rich. Okay? There's no, there's no names for the, like that. So you only get what the Lord wants to give you. You got it? It's just a very, very, you know, this is just basic, this is just basic Christian stuff. So, um, you know, prayer only does good because the only prayers that are real prayers are prayers that are in the name and only Jesus wants to do good. So prayer always does good. And you can't... Um, do evil if you pray in Jesus' name because Jesus doesn't have any enemies. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and he dies for people who scorn him. So Jesus doesn't have any enemies, so you can't have any enemies. Another you know, brilliant thing I learned from John, you can't have any enemies. Jesus doesn't have enemies, you can't have enemies. So you can't do any evil when you pray. And you see, this is the great consolation. So in one sense, you know, I started by saying, don't stack up your anxieties and try not to pray, I want a pony, I want a pony. On the other hand, your prayers can never be wrong. 
that doesn't mean they should stay at the same level. You can get better at it. Um, your prayers could be more mature. Your prayers could be more humble. But they can never go wrong. Um, you can never do any, any evil. And then here's the weirdest thing. I mean, this is almost verbatim, as verbatim as I can get it. If an enemy of Christ tries to abuse prayer, it does not destroy them. It actually changes them into a Christian. Isn't that weird? No, that's not on there. I'm just reading you from my own notes. See, I can't, I can't write down things that I didn't hear verbatim, but I'll just read it to you. If an enemy of Christ tries to abuse prayer, it does, it doesn't, it does not destroy them. It changes them into a Christian. That interesting. Can you think of any in scriptures? Balaam comes to mind. Let's try Balaam. So Balaam comes, he gets hired, they give him some money to go curse Israel. You remember the story? Every time he opens his mouth to curse them, what happens? A prayer. Well, the donkey does talk, exactly, because he's not as smart as his donkey, right? But every time he tries to curse them, a blessing comes out. It's like, it's, it's like his mouth doesn't work. And it changes him. Now it changes him into a Christian. You know, I have to stretch a little bit to get there. But I, I just sort of put it out there. I don't actually have all the answers for you. I'm just, we're kind of at the, hey, it's Friday, we're going to have a cup of coffee and think about things we haven't thought about before. Go ahead. Yeah, that's last week's prayer, or last week's gospel. So the demon-possessed guy says, I know who you are, but you're the son of God. Now, the next thing he says is fascinating, which is, have you come to destroy us? Which is very interesting. And there, there are a couple places where Jesus does destroy the demons, in a sense, um, by sending them back to where they came from. Can you think of a story like that? The pig story, yeah. The pig story is, so he doesn't really answer the man. He doesn't, we don't get too much more data, but Mark is short on data. I mean, Mark has some place to go. You know, he's always moving on, right? He's good. So he just basically says to the guy, come out. And come out means go away. So come out and go away. And we don't really get the... But what we do know is the demon is less comfortable than he was before. You're a very nice person to possess, right? I mean, if, you were, if I was a demon looking for somebody to possess, you'd be on my top ten list, okay? <laughs> very comfortable at your house, you know. Um... Demons don't like to go back. Uh, hell is even hell for demons. You've got to remember that, right? It's not a particularly kind place. Hell is like, like living in you know, Big Brother's house forever. You know? Hell is this ongoing real reality show. I mean, have you ever watched those shows? Don't watch them. But if you d- I mean, just to, watch the, just to watch the commercial means you'd think to yourself, I would never want to live there. That's what hell is like. So, you know, there you go. You can puzzle on that if you want, um, but what I, the, you know, so the here's the kindness of that. You don't have to be scared to say your prayers. It's a double thing. Your prayers can get better. You can do a better and better job if you're only ever praying about yourself. If you're only ever praying about what you want. If your prayers are always anxious, and I'm, I don't mean, you know, part of your prayers can be anxious. But read the Psalms. Even in the midst of the most anxious Psalms, there's always a part. If you read the Psalms where the, where people are just beat upon. What they normally say is something like, hey, God, will you kill my enemies for me? Kill them really bad. Make them suffer on the way back. And don't even let them have grad. Yeah, burn their houses. Kill their children. Don't even let them have, you know, and their grand, get their grandchildren too. Yeah, scatter them up. Give them the Philistines, right? Okay. So there's clearly anxiety, even anger, and this sense of, you know, propriety, justice. I'm good. And then normally what the Psalms say, almost always they'll just they'll say, okay, but you're God and you can do what you want and I'll live with it because you take good care of me and it's all going to be okay, so have a nice day. That's how the Psalms kind of go. They, they, you start with, many of the Psalms, when, when people are in great pain, they, they sort of scream out their anxieties and then they, toward the end they say, okay, you're still God and whatever you happen to do, I'm going to live with that. It's okay for your prayers to be like that, but there's even more. There's other psalms where they say, I remember the days when I was in trouble, and I remember the days when you pulled me out of the mud. I remember the days when you stood by my family. And I remember the days when you cared for me, and so you'll probably care for me in the future, and I'm going to be okay. 
That's a much more mature and gentle sort of prayer. It's not the sort of prayer you can pray all the time. My, my, so just here's my warning, or maybe my blessing. I don't know which it is. Your prayers can get better. Any prayer is acceptable, but your prayers can get better. How's that for one line? Is that okay? <laughs> is that all right? I mean, any prayer is acceptable. Say your prayers, and, and don't be anxious about your prayers. Say your prayers, and if you just have to stack up anxieties for a while... But you should know that that's the beginning of the Christian life and not the end. And you're a pretty sophisticated group now. I mean, you, you have some responsibility. Um, you know, take this in the right way, given our previous conversation. But the, the church does suggest that there are responsibilities that you have that those two younger women don't have. You have responsibilities. Not you. You're a little closer. But you do. You have responsibilities, you know. You have responsibilities at your ages. You have age-appropriate responsibilities. How's that? Right? I mean, look at old Mary Caesar. Just relax, Mary. Take the rest of the hour off, okay? Let, the, let some of the older women take care of things, okay? Experienced women. The scriptures does say, you know, does say older, but it says it with respect, right? Sorry? Wiser is enough. Well, actually, and that actually is very helpful, Mary, because that's actually what they mean. Because they were in a culture where older was always respected, Right? So older did automatically meet, was an automatic compliment. For us in our society, it's not. But for them, it was a compliment. The presumption was older was wiser, but what was the other presumption? You'd been, yeah, yes, that is the other side of the coin. Yes, younger, and that goes with dumber. But the other presumption was is that the reason you're, let's see, I got to find, the reason older people were smarter than younger people is because they'd been to the altar for prayers Morning and evening, more times. They'd had more repetitions. So the presumption was that you'd, if you're 70, you'd bend, to, you'd bend to prayers, you know, two times 365 times 70. And if you're 30, you'd only been, you know, two times 365 times 30. So the presumption was the Lord had touched you more and you were better at it and brighter and more mature and you'd been through more and you saw more. Well, of course, that is all completely washed out if what? If you didn't say your prayers and if you don't go to church. And if you define the church as just the bare minimum as getting out of hell, and so you're out of hell, and so you come just on Christmas and Easter, and yet you claim your prerogative of age even though you haven't put in the reps. Right? See, that's where it goes wrong. And that happened, and you know it happened because that's what happened to Israel when they ended up in Babylon. Read the, read the Psalms about when they go to Babylon. We forgot. We didn't remember. We didn't say our prayers. We turned our backs. We weren't faithful. We didn't do our work. We didn't what? We didn't take care of the widows and the orphans. Absolutely. We were miserly. God forbid you talk about money. I can't believe you injected that into this conversation. But yeah, one of the marks of people who are immature is they argue about giving 10%. Read Malachi. I mean, the, conversa- the stupid conversation of the American church and the Lutheran church about this, as if somehow the Lord is going to get by on less than 1% of what we give, it is the stupidest conversation Forget about whether you're under the law or not. The church cannot exist on 1%, and we're proof of it. And, if you don't, and even if you don't believe that we're proof of it, read any document. The synod has no money. The district has no money. Churches have, Why doesn't anybody have any money? Because we don't take care of widows and orphans, because we don't care, because we're not mature, because we haven't been to the altar, because we think it's all about us, because we haven't kept the discipline, right? Well, I'm just going to get up on my soapbox here and keep going. But it just comes out. It's, it's so easy. This is just so easy. It's easy. It's so easy. And it's hard at the same time, which is why you who are older have some responsibility to say to younger people, this is how it works. This is what we all do. They're there. This is what we do. This is who we are. Make sense? And actually, that's one of the fun things about St. John. I think I told you we're trying to refinance our debt, you know, because everybody else is too, because the interest rates are down. We can't do it quite yet because we're a little stretched in turn until we sell little property. We're just like right on the cusp, but banks are so tight right now that they're nervous. One of the banks came back though and said, we've never had a church whose giving per person on Sunday morning was higher. Isn't that interesting? That's really quite remarkable. But I can just tell you, not everybody here tithes. I'm, I'm not in this room. Everybody at St. John, I was What's really interesting, it's fun to be in a church where the bank comes back and says, your giving is like, and it was some, I, got, I should get it properly from John, but it was like $3,900 a person or something for Sunday. It was, they're like, this is off the charts, and we're not even close to where we need to be yet. It's fun to be that church. It's fun to be the good church. It's fun to be that church.
You say your prayers, you give your money, you take care of the widows and orphans. Everybody knows what to do. This is not hard, right? You just, but it takes, it's discipline. But it's not discipline in the way of you're bad people. This is discipline in the way in. You want to live? You want to have fun? You want your life to work out? You want to talk about something else besides money? The best church is the church that has money that never talks about money, because what does that mean? Everybody's doing it. Says prayers, but doesn't always talk about prayers, right? Because everybody's doing it. So they talk about widows and orphans. They talk about how can, what we can do for sick people. What about young people? What are we doing for that? You know? So, anyway. Now, whether you know it or not, I've pushed you all the way through on this sheet. So, um, Christ's dilemma, how can you work with him? The answer is, relax. And say your prayers, and know that your prayers can't go wrong. That's kind of the first one. And then the second one we talked about, that you are um, part of the royal priesthood. So now we just need to pause. I'm at the third bullet point on Kleinig's outline. What does a priest do? And this is another place where we kind of get mixed up because we talk about we're the royal priesthood. And normally when people talk about being the royal priesthood, what does that mean usually for people? Sorry? Everyone's a priest, and what does that usually, what do they translate? What do they think that means? Sorry. Democracy. Yeah, I'm in charge. I'm a priest, so I'm in charge. Um, er, slam the brakes on. In the scriptures, what does a priest do? There are a couple things a priest do, does. What does a priest do? Sorry? He makes sacrifices. He makes sacrifices. What's the other thing he does? Praise for the people. Did you say that? Yeah, you were, yeah, okay. So two things, two things. I could, you were all, two things a priest normally does. He says his prayers and makes his sacrifice. So congratulations. I'm very happy to have all of you and me be part of the royal priesthood. The royal priesthood doesn't mean you're in charge. There was a high priest who was in charge. The royal priesthood means say your prayers and make your sacrifice. This is all over the scriptures. Roman 12, present your body as a living sacrifice. Why are you a living sacrifice? Because, why? Yeah, and Jesus was the dead sacrifice. And after the Jesus dead sacrifice on Good Friday, there's no more sacrifices. So you're still a priest, but you make a living sacrifice. How do you make a living sacrifice? Yeah, make your sac- take care of widows and orphans. Say your prayers. No, it is true, right? All the pastoral epistles, what do they talk? When the pastoral epistles say, say, read your scripture, say your prayers, take care of the widows and orphans. James, if you see somebody without a coat, give them a coat. If there's somebody who has food, give them food. That's to be a living sacrifice. It means it's going to pinch you a little bit for somebody else. So one is you make your sacrifices, which means you're always looking around at people saying, what good you can do. That's what priests do, royal priesthood. Make sacrifices. You can't make a sacrifice that's going to make God love you. You can make sacrifices that shows your love for other people. Make sense? And the other thing is that priests always do is say your prayers. At least morning and evening. Everybody in Israel went morning and evening. Jesus went morning and evening. In Acts, the disciples went morning and evening. In the Psalms, there's morning and evening prayer, right? So at the very least, you get up in the morning and say your prayers. One thing that's one good thing that morning Eucharist here is good for, if you can come, it's automatic, you know, it encourages you. And before you go to bed at night or with your kids at dinner or sometime, morning and evening, say your prayers. So this is great. You're part of the royal priesthood. You have responsibility. You know, there's this old saying, um, you know, smarty pants college kids, if you hang around them, you get, you know, smarty pants questions and then you get smarty pants answers. And so I can remember a smarty pants college kid, not me, but I was, you know, saying to a monk, um, it doesn't seem to make any difference. Why do you keep praying? And the monk replied, can you imagine what the world would be like if I didn't? Which is actually a very fine answer. You know, it'd be lots, lots worse if everybody stopped praying who's praying. And it could get lots, lots better if everybody who wasn't praying would start praying. Right? And now, see, the encouragement for you is it can't go wrong. You can't get it wrong. You can't get it wrong because Jesus gives it to you. You can't get it wrong because he gives you his Holy Spirit. You can't get it wrong because he loves you. You can't get it wrong because you're his friend. You can't get it wrong because he tells you in his names what to pray for. You just can't get it wrong. And you can only make life better. You're a very young grandma, too, and I wanted to just say that. (laughs) 
Also, you're showing her that it's just the natural thing. It's just mm-hmm. what Christians do. It's not some odd extra practice. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is well, part of it is the Holy Spirit is active there too, right? So you're blessing yourself. Were you going to say something, Beth? No, oh, go ahead. But you do the best you can, right? Yeah. Are you a fixer by nature? <laughs> and by training. And by training, right? It's a hard thing if you're a fixer by nature and a fixer by training. There's a lot of fixers in this congregation, by the way. I think you might have to have a fixer gene to live in Wheaton. It's a lot of fixer people, is it not? I mean, fixer people are often very successful people. And they, you know... No, I'm completely great. I think it's fantastic. Fixers are great as long as they know when to stop, right? As long as fixers are, I'm a fixer, you know? Uh, I can think of like 19 things. Christmas sharing or the sanctuary or something else. All the above, yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. The, 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 the deal with like all other things is to be a fixer within the boundaries of Christ, right? Because there's some things... We can't fix. There's some things he doesn't want fixed. There's some things where he's fixing in ways we don't know he's fixing it. Exactly. And that's, and that's, of course, the lesson to learn. But on the other hand, and I just, I can't encourage you enough and go ahead and fix some stuff, okay? Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed, right? And if you run out of things, I can introduce you to Jan and Carol, who always have a list of things that need to be fixed. There's some things that need to be fixed around here, right? Is this true, is it not? So it's good. It's very good. It's very nice. And the, the good thing is, see, it's fun to be part. What This is the transition the church is. I mean, this is, so I won't ruin the other margin comment for you, but um, on Sunday there's a margin comment from you know Timothy Dolan, who is the Archbishop of New York and now will be the, a cardinal soon, where he basically talks about, you know, something I've said to you for years, but, you know, this is, you know, to prove nothing's original, um, he basically says, you get, the, you get the sense of hanging around church people that everybody's cranky all the time. He's especially talking about priests and nuns. I mean, isn't it fun to be part of a group that's not cranky all the time, that's fixing <laughs> stuff? And so I'm being really serious. I mean, mm-hmm. he, was, he, was, he made his name as, as Bishop of Milwaukee. And then the, he gave this, he wore a cheese head instead of his mitre. Yes, that's right. Which was greatly offended some of, in the, uh, yeah. Oh, no, he was fully vested and had the cheese head on. Yeah. There's a picture of him. And, uh, you know, there were people who were divided about whether that was a wise move or not. Yeah, it was a very interesting piece. Actually, after that piece, Gainig wrote him, and he wrote back. It was very, like, in the, like two days later. He wrote him and said, we thought that was hilarious. And he, he, wrote, him, he wrote Gainig back and said, thanks, it was kind of fun, and blah, blah. <laughs> Right. 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 And so that's the guy who is the first comment in the bulletin for this week. And the, the point of that is that's, and we sense it here. I mean, even the stuff you're talking about. There's nothing more fun in this church than Christmas sharing, unless it's building a sanctuary. But there's very few things that are more fun than Christmas sharing. I mean, that is, that's about as good as life can get. Isn't it fun to be part of that? And so for you all, you know, and, and isn't it nice to be in a church where you can have that conversation? I mean, part of the thing is um, there's sort of nothing more fun than saying your prayers. And partly what you need to do is find each other and say your prayers. Morning Eucharist, I mean, it was a little light this morning, but, you know, it was on maybe 20 this morning. But, you know, Morning Eucharist gets up to 40 or 50 people at least once during the week. There's sort of, there's just something about, it was a little subdued this morning because there were fewer and whatever, but, it, it, you know, there's something about showing up and having a bunch of other people there and everybody's on the same page and you kind of get straightened out and life's good and here we go into the world. There's something great about that. So my whole, you know, my whole, my whole wish for you in all of this is before you drop dead, you know, I mean, before you drop dead, I would like you to be part of a congregation that you're proud of, that's peaceful, that's generous, that takes care of widows and orphans, that works all over the place, that finds joy in the Christian life, that understands that Jesus was not grim, you know? The grimness he endured, but 
It's all about, and this is not about being rich or about being successful. This is about keeping the disciplines that calm your soul. It's a discipline to be generous to widows and orphans. It also is genius. Christmas sharing. There's nothing better than Christmas sharing. It's great. There's nothing better than being a church that doesn't talk about money. They give so much, like Moses says, you know, his only responsibility is to tell them to stop giving because apparently all the closets were full, you know, $100 bills, you know, stop. That's the church you want to be. And prayer is a part of that. And your notion of being a priest in the church is that you sacrifice and you pray, you sacrifice and you pray. Your whole Christian life can be defined as say your prayers and make your sacrifice. So you get up in the morning, you say your prayers, you go about your life, which is always in service to other people. That's what sacrifice is. And you say your prayers again, and you go to bed, and you get up and do it again. The joy of a congregation is you don't have to do it alone. It's why religious join communities. It's why, they, it's, why they, it's why people become monks and nuns, and brothers and sisters, and even oblates. It's why people attach themselves to communities, because they not only have joy with it, but they have joy together. Now, the trick is to not become cranky in that because the challenge has become so big. The trick is to live the life in a disciplined way that brings joy. If you say your prayers and make your sacrifice, your life will be joyful. Not because you've earned anything, but because Jesus has been very clear about what it is to have a joyful life. You say your prayers and you make your sacrifice. And your prayers will A, get answered, or B, they won't. And if they get answered, you say thank you very much. And if they don't get answered, you say thank you very much. Right? Joy and humility. And you make your sacrifice, which means you serve those under your care, your husband, your wife, your kids, your grandkids, your congregation, but also the strangers in the world. Matthew 26. When did I do this to you? When did I give you a cup of water? When did I visit you in prison? Oh, I was in the stranger. So you do it. You sacrifice to your family and those whom you love. That's natural. Boom. But also to those who are your enemies and you don't love. Unnatural. Boom. So the answer across the choices was joy, 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 and joy. Now what's not clear about that? Yes, please. It is interesting to sit in a doctor's office. But that's exactly what that I... Right, exactly. But I, that's exactly... I actually would like you to... I mean, that's... Thank you. I mean, what we want is... I want you to hear priest as servant as opposed to priest as boss. And in our priesthood of all believers talk, we almost always... It's almost always invoked as I'm part of the royal priesthood, so I'm the boss around here. I want exactly the opposite. I want exactly what you're saying, which is I want you to understand how does a priest serve? He prays for you and he sacrifices for you. How did Jesus serve? He prays for you, right? He's constantly praying for the church. I mean, John 15 through 17, it's one long prayer. What does Jesus do? He prays for you and he sacrifices you on the cross. It won't do you any good to go to the cross. It does you a great amount of good to go on the eyeglass mission trip. It's just the same thing. Yeah, you're exactly right. So priest needs to be synonymous with service. And unfortunately, we Lutherans, especially Missouri Cenotypes, have utterly corrupted that. So, so what? I mean, I can't control that anymore. But in our place, you're exactly right. Priest becomes servant, okay? And servant becomes pray and sacrifice. And the cool thing about the rest of this sheet is you get to do that with the Lord. He's actually paying attention to you. It's not a mindless effort. He's actually listening to you. It's, it's great stuff. Um, I found a great book I bought, you know, a year ago, and things languish sometimes on my shelf. Um, it's it's um, prayers for prayers and and um, little activities for the days of Lent. Uh, this one from Saint Francis and Saint Clare. Would you have any interest in that if I got them? I don't have a lot of money. They're about 10 bucks a piece. If you want one, why don't you kind of let me know? I probably, I don't know how much public, I don't know what exactly to do with this, but it is a genius prayer, a little bit of um, wisdom from them, um, some scripture, and then something to do. It sort of says something like, um, today when you bump into the person you really don't like, try not to scorn them, and if you can, pray for them, period. That's your thing to do for today. 
I, you know, I just, I don't exactly know how to, I, I've been trying to figure out how to, I don't want to institutionalize this because I can't handle one more Bible study, but the interesting thing would be to go through and say, let's all do this and then process it. The problem with that is, is there's no more hours in the day, you know, and yet I don't want to hold it back from you for another year or two mm-hmm. until we get to another Lent and we can do that. So I might just give it to you and then maybe we chatter about it a little bit if you want, if you have some interest. Does that interest you? Um, so I don't know, maybe I'll order 50 of them or something and pray that the bill gets lost in the mail. Okay. <laughs> so we pray and go? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.